0: Hi there, I'm Dexter Fergie, and this is New Books in the History of the Social Sciences. Thanks for listening. Today I'll be speaking with Bill Rankin about his impressive new book called After the Map, Cartography, Navigation, and the Transformation of Territory in the 20th Century. It was published by the University of Chicago Press in 2016. Bill Rankin, by day, is an assistant professor of history at Yale, By night, he is an award-winning cartographer, and his cartographic expertise shines throughout the pages of After the Map. The book is a deep and rich exploration of the shift from maps to grids and eventually to GPS, or to use Bill's words, it is about the shift from paper to electronic signals, from the logic of representation to the logic of the grid, and from a focus on contiguous areas of space to a framework of points. The book traces 20th-century developments in infrastructure, mapping techniques, and war that dramatically altered the meaning of territory. These developments produced novel geographic subjectivities, but also radically different conceptions of sovereignty and global politics. The book should interest historians of science and technology, Americanists, international historians, critical cartographers, and geographers. Today, Bill Rankin is on our show to discuss his new book, After the Map, Cartography, Navigation, and the Transformation of Territory in the 20th Century. Welcome to the new books in the history of the social sciences, Bill. Great. Thanks for having me. Of course. Um, Can you start us off by telling listeners a little bit about yourself, uh, what brought you to history and specifically to writing this book? Sure.
1: Um, So my background actually was in architecture and civil engineering. Um, That's where I studied as an undergraduate. That's what I did for a few years after college. Um, and, uh, and, and then I kind of found my way to uh, history of science through my interest in the kind of, you know, the, the technical uh, aspects of um, making space, basically. Um, so c- kind of coming out of my interests in space, my interests in design, uh, finding my way into history of science, history of technology um kind of eventually led me towards uh mapping um and it wasn't initially that i was knew knew i was going to do the history of mapping Uh, i actually first started out making maps just as a kind of diversion and it was actually making maps myself that uh, got me more interested in the history of mapping uh, and especially uh the kind of changes in in
0: mapping alternatives to mapping uh in the last few decades okay very interesting thank you um So uh, there's a lot to discuss from your book, Uh, it's extremely rich, it's filled with uh, so many different arguments. Um, but before we get into the contents of the book, I just want to alert listeners to a couple of things. First, I want to note the uh, book's inclusion of a surprising number of images. Uh, there's, uh, I think, over 140, um, which really helped me as a reader um, follow your arguments about changing mapping techniques. Um, so uh, kudos to your permissive editors at the University of Chicago Press. Um, and second, um, all of those images, along with the bibliography, graphs, etc., are published in the book's beautiful uh, supplementary website, Um, so for listeners wanting visual references, I recommend checking out the website, and I'll link the site in the blog post. Um, So uh, to get started, the introduction neatly stakes out your goals, and you suggest that there are two scales to the book. Um, The first, on the micro-political level, you are interested in the uh, mapping sciences of the 20th century and how the development of new mapping techniques produced a new geographic subjectivity. And on the second uh, macro-political level, you are attempting to write a political and cultural history of geographic space itself. You connect both levels when you write that the 20th century change in the logic of mapping should be understood quite broadly as a shift in the nature of territory. Um, so generally speaking, what were these changes um, to uh, the logic of mapping and to the nature of territory?
1: Sure. I mean, actually, the, I find similar uh, changes at both scales. Um, which is about the, the shift from seeing the world as a collection of well bounded areas. Um, that's the kind of, you know, the, the familiar pastel shapes of the world map, uh, the God's eye view from above, um, and going from that kind of area based, uh, well bounded understanding of space to something which I call a more pointillistic space, where uh, territory is managed and understood as a kind of constellation of disparate points. Um, through everything from long-range bombing to kind of uh, rapid response humanitarian aid, um, but also as an, at an individual level, uh, understanding uh, space not as your relationship to a well-bounded shape on a map, but understanding yourself as the kind of the dot in the middle of the map on your screen, uh, or as the places that you know uh, and travel to as dots somewhere else that you're connected through uh, algorithms, uh, navigation algorithms, to get there. Um, so... Uh, Both at the kind of big level of kind of grand strategy, uh, military strategy, uh, but not just military, but also at the sort of day-to-day level of how we actually understand ourselves um, and our surroundings. I see this kind of move uh, towards the the pointillistic, uh, towards the kind of the individual uh,
0: point rather than the the broad area. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So, you divide the book into uh, three parts, and each part um, you explore uh, basically a different uh, cartographic or uh, navigation project. Um, and the, uh, the first one is the International Map of the World and the Logic of Representation. Um, so can you tell us a bit about the International Map of the World project, perhaps who were uh, its, some of its proponents, what were uh, their motivations, and what were some of the problems that they encountered?
1: Sure. Um, so yeah, the, the, international map of the world, uh, like all three of the projects, um, you know, in its time it was proposed in 1891 and lasted for almost the entire 20th century, but especially in its heyday in, in the early 20th century, it was really an attempt to organize all geographic knowledge. The idea was that you, the, the countries of the world would collaborate on uh, an atlas uh, of unprecedented detail, um, You know, thousands such uh, a thousand or so map sheets, each with standardized graphics, allocation uh, of responsibility divided um, by political uh, authority. Uh, And then the the resulting maps would be distributed through international channels. There was a kind of a central clearinghouse uh, in in England that coordinated everything. The idea was basically that that geographers and uh, mapping agencies uh, should agree on some standards for their work. And therefore, the world uh, as a whole would be mapped in a way that could be legible to all. Um, the, the, what's really interesting about the project, it started as uh, really a project within geography. The, the original idea came from a, a German geographer named Albrecht uh, Pencht. Um, and, uh, and his idea was really that you know, geography as a discipline needed a kind of core founding project. But uh, by the eve of World War I, uh, in order to make this project work, there was much more enrollment with national mapping agencies. So in order for it to get going, it moved from a kind of an academic project to a, st- a state-driven project. Uh, and that meant that allocation of responsibility for these uh, various map sheets was divided by, uh, by country. Uh, and uh, the kind of people who then kind of were the sort of second generation for running the project tended to be much more nationalist- uh, much more interested in just sort of preserving their country's dignity, um, making sure that their country, you know, had full mapping control over their own colonies, uh, those kinds of things. So that was kind of one big shift um, from the kind of 1890s to uh, World War I. Um, a lot of that kind of mapping did happen uh, uh, in the 1920s and 30s. And then the other big shift was uh, right after World War II, Um, When the project uh, was taken up by the UN and uh, and instead of being a kind of nationalist project, uh, started to be seen as a project of economic development uh, where the United Nations um, would help kind of train uh, local mapping staff in uh, um, colonies or former colonies uh, in order to make sure that uh, these new countries could kind of contribute to uh, this large project, um, but especially to use mapping as a way to try to attract uh, outside uh, investment.
0: Okay, wonderful. And you, you touched on how there were these changes in uh, in notions of territory, but what about um, uh, what you call geoepistemology? What, does the, uh, what was the geoepistemology of um, the international map of the world?
1: Sure, yeah. So I used the, 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 word, uh, the phrase geoepistemology basically as a way to say that it's not just what we know about the world that matters, but how we know it. Um, so, you know, instead of trying to kind of tell the history of mapping as a history of, you know, how much, uh, you know, how, how accurate the knowledge is, how accurate the coastlines are, how many railroads and all that kind of stuff. Uh, What matters to me in the international map of the world was how they organized their knowledge. And this was, you know, in a kind of traditional cartographic uh, way, this sort of, this kind of view from above. Um, But especially crucially here, there was, there was really this very close allegiance to, Uh, the apparatus of national governments so that uh, responsibility for each map sheet was divided based on, you know, which, you know, by by country. Um, So the kind of the the project as a whole became a kind of, you know, kind of pixelated territorial game. Um, This played out, especially in Africa, where there was this big negotiation about which map sheets would be uh, claimed by different uh, colonial powers. Um, Map sheets that were left unclaimed, for example, of of Ethiopia, Italy swooped in and and said that it would it would map those. Um, So it really seems that there was both visually and politically, there is this really strong um, allegiance to the national state as the kind of um, the basic organizing building
0: block of the world. Thank you. So uh, in part two, cartographic grids and new territories of calculation, you move your focus away from this earlier International Map of the World project and think about grids and the creation of grids as an alternative to latitude and longitude. Um, Can you explain the novelty of grids, um, why they were created and uh, what their original manifestations look like? Sure. Um, So a grid is... You know, it's basically exactly what it sounds like.
1: It's really straightforward uh, visually. Um, any topographic map um, that you might use for hiking probably has a grid on top of it. Um, and that's what I'm referring to. Um, but the trick about these grids is that they are measured in um, meters, sometimes yards, but usually meters. Um, and they're totally flat. So they're not latitude and longitude, which are angular measurements, uh, you know, anchored to the center of the Earth. They are Euclidean measurements, um, kind of running uniform across not just a single map sheet, but several, uh, many map sheets. Um, And so they they first originated um, on the paper uh, itself in World War I. Uh, And the idea was that, uh, you know, long-range guns were able to fire well out of sight of the gunner. um, And these map grids were really helpful for aiming those guns. So you could locate yourself on the grid you and your gun on the grid, and, and you'd know your own coordinates, you'd get coordinates of a target, uh, and you would very easily be able to calculate the distance and direction between you and your target uh, in ways that are much easier to do than if you're using latitude and latitude. Um, now, what's interesting about those grids, though, um, is that they have a much longer history as a kind of you know, scaffolding, a mathematical scaffolding for mapping, but they were never actually used for anything. Uh, they were never actually, never actually printed on maps, until World War I. Um, and at the same time, during World War I, it's mostly done by the French. Uh, there's this big study of map projections to figure out what map projections can best do this trick of having a Euclidean grid on top of a curved Earth um, and a total kind of you know, uh, transformation of how maps are, are, are printed and, and used. But one thing that's, that's really fascinating, uh, really right at the beginning, World War I, is that uh, this new kind of coordinate system means that the map itself, as a paper object, uh, kind of becomes obsolete. Um, That once you have your own coordinates on this grid, and you have your target's coordinates, you kind of don't need the map for much of anything. Um, And so the grid is this really interesting and kind of crucial transformation in my story, where it's something that is absolutely coming out of mapping, cartography, paper maps. But once it's fully installed and realized and kind of literally installed on the battlefield... Uh, the maps themselves become the sigil, and what matters is your own point locations on this new kind of coordinate system.
0: Hmm. Thank you. Yeah, it's something that I had never really considered before. But I mean, um, grids are everywhere. They, uh, we we do live in gridded space. Uh, so in the the second chapter of uh, the uh, the part on grids, um, you discussed the universal transverse Mercator system. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and uh, uh, how it um, re- reflects or reflected or perhaps even generated changes in uh, notions of territory and globalism and sovereignty. Yeah, absolutely. So the first grids, um, World
1: War I, uh, they, those, it was really defined, that was really confined just to uh, the, the battlefields of the war, um, the Western Front, uh, the Eastern Front. Uh, after World War One, uh, especially during the 1930s, uh, a lot of similar kind of small scale grids were used for domestic purposes in a lot of different countries, uh, not just France and Germany, but also the U.S., Egypt, Siam, lots of places. And then during World War II, these similar kind of patchwork of regional grids uh, was used for artillery during the war, but it didn't really work. Um, the British tried to cover kind of most of Eurasia with this kind of patchwork of custom-designed uh, grids, each one trying to be sort of designed for a different theater of war. Um, but the war was a war of, of motion rather than a static war of, of trench warfare. Um, and so people were constantly, tr- you know, f- coming up against the boundaries of these, uh, these coordinate systems and having to fire across them was very difficult. And so the Americans... Um, at first, during the war, but especially after the war, uh, the Universal Transverse Mercator was designed in 1947-48 uh, by the U.S. Army, really as a response to this, this kind of uh, patchwork of individual grids, each of which was trying to be kind of custom fit to a particular uh, country or a theater of war. And instead, the United States uh, came up with a, a, a uniform series of 60-grid kind of strips these very narrow grids, going from the North Pole all the way to the South Pole, uh, sixty right in a row, actually using the same kind of uh, sheet logic of as the international map of the world, um, and in so doing this kind of very uniform global system, they also found mathematical tricks for making it easier to fire uh, from one grid to the next. Uh, basically, you know, the 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 some result was that after World War II, uh, this kind of you know point based Grid-like alternative to latitude and longitude became a global system that really was able to be used um, not just within particular areas, but um, but really quite broadly. And as a new form of territory, you know, I I see this uh, quite strongly as a way of really trying to make space kind of practically useful um, in ways that kind of transcended the the boundaries of national states. Um, so earlier maps and earlier grids. Uh, the kind of the knowledge space you were working in tended to stop at national boundaries. And the, the American system was explicitly designed to do away with that. So you could have kind of centimeter, or even millimeter level uh, precision uh, cutting across national borders. Uh, and so that's really a crucial moment for me when you have this kind of transnational, uh, but very, still very practical uh, ability to, uh, to, to work at space in this kind of smooth, borderless uh, way.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think the the, the differences uh, are quite stark between um, earlier conceptions of space and um, the uh, conceptions that uh, the universe, oh, that, that the grid provides. Um, so, as we move on to part three, um, uh, titled "Electronic Navigation and Territorial um, Pointalism," you take us down the road to GPS. Uh, and here we come into contact with some of the earlier predecessors of g p s uh, mainly radio navigation systems um, in the early twentieth century uh, What are some of the uh the, the differences between these early navigation systems and uh the grids or maps um, that you discussed in the previous chapters sure um so I think that in in uh, in
1: many respects g p s as we know it today uh works a lot like Uh, some of the grid systems I was just describing, which is to say what matters is your coordinate uh, in a global system rather than your location within a bounded area. Um, But what's really interesting about the history of radio navigation, um, which really starts in the 1910s, uh, 1920s after World War I, there's a huge explosion of different kinds of systems in World War II, uh, and then GPS uh, is kind of created uh, or starts to be created in the 1970s, and really doesn't become ubiquitous until the 1990s. So there's a very long history to these navigation uh, technologies. And and what's really interesting there is that this point-like, kind of grid-like um, way of organizing radio was not the only way, and for a long time was, was not uh, the preferred way. Um, in the early 20th century, in the, the 20s and 30s, especially in the United States, uh, the main way that radio uh, was used for navigation was creating uh, kind of stable pathways. Um, so the main technology in the United States was called the radio range, um, where you would fly from kind of airport to airport along very well-focused radio beams. Um, and you would be able to sort of know whether you were on the beam or off the beam, and therefore be able to kind of hop your way from, you know, across the country, just basically connecting dots along these kind of stable radio uh, paths. Um, and during World War II was really when you got this n- new way of using radio to create, uh, basically or literally grids um, rather than paths. Um, some of the first early, earliest radio navigation systems. Uh, there's one in, in, from Britain called G, for example, G E E, and that the G was also a code letter that, that stood for grid. The uh, the the head of the radio uh, the radar project in Britain. Uh, Robert Watson-Watt uh, famously said that his goal was to uh, unfold an electronic grid over Germany. And the way that these systems worked was that they had uh, various kind of you know transponders placed here and there uh, that would send out uh, signals. But basically, what you had in the in the cockpit was a map with lots of lines ruled over it and a block black box that would give you two numbers. Uh, the black box was receiving signals from the ground. Uh, And the two numbers would correspond to some of the colored lines on your chart. Um, And so just by locating yourselves at the intersection of two of these kind of kooky uh, curved lines, uh, you would be literally locating yourself in a radio grid. Um, So it's not that there's a a kind of... uh, Yes, there is a kind of uh, similarity in how you experience these kinds of systems. They're grid-like in a kind of experiential sense. But the earliest ones in World War II were literally grids. There was actually lines printed on paper maps in exactly the same way that you have lines printed on the artillery maps of World War I. So to me, that's a really important uh, way of anchoring the history of of GPS, of radio navigation, uh, into these same concerns about the role of maps, the increasing uh, increasing obsolescence of maps for navigation, uh, the grid and the coordinate as being more important than uh, the
0: bounded area. Wonderful. Thank you. So uh in, in the second part of uh part three, it uh you begin to take us uh or explore GPS and its uh origins and uh its early history and you really show how uh, contingent it was and it's uh kinda hard to imagine given how ubiquitous GPS is today. Can you uh sketch out this history for us? Uh in particular, can you uh share with listeners what GPS, what, what global coverage actually means for uh, geographic subjectivity and territoriality?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so on the first point, I think it's it's really important to, to kind of put yourself in the minds of a kind of mid-1960s radio engineer. There are literally dozens of navigation systems um, and they kind of work well. Um, and the engineers actually like the fact that there's so many because that means that there's redundancy. There's backup. You can have a custom design system for helicopters uh, and a totally different kind of system for fishing vessels. Um, And it's better than having just one system that does everything. Um, And so it's really the Department of Defense, the U.S. Department of Defense, uh, that says, no, no, no. we actually don't like how the Air Force and the Navy uh, and the Army, uh, to a certain extent, all have their own systems, uh, each confined to a specific use. Uh, and it's the Department of Defense trying to manage this huge military bureaucracy that, that comes up with the idea of trying to make one system that will displace all other systems. And so almost immediately, this is a project that nobody really wants, except this small group of, of people in the Department of Defense. Um, so it's, you know, the, the accuracy that we now take for granted is obviously you know, we want systems to be as accurate as possible. Um, no one at the time actually needed kind of, you know, meter level precision in their navigation Uh, ships were totally fine with a couple of kilometers Uh, nobody needed global coverage really Uh, the u.s navy uh, was was one of the only uh, agencies that that did need it uh, for guiding uh, its nuclear submarines and and ships Um, but they already had systems that did a very good job uh, and they they didn't feel a need uh, for anything uh anything new um all the other systems uh, were, you know, tended to be local or they would stretch across, say, the North Atlantic connecting, you know, civil aviation between the U.S. and, and Europe. And they all basically worked fine. And so the, the story of GPS, uh, it was approved in 1973, um, sort of through the 1970s, especially into the early 1980s. The story is really one of uh, it being attacked from the people it was supposed to benefit. Uh, so the Navy was against it. The Air Force wanted to cut funding. The Department of Transportation had no interest in it. The FAA said it would never use it um, again and again and again. So it was really uh, a system that that really faced a lot of obstacles. Um, One of the things that really uh, kind of solidified it and made it actually happen was uh, in 1983, there was an airliner that uh, accidentally veered over uh, Russian airspace um, on its way to Korea and was shot down by the Soviets uh, killing everyone on board, uh, including a U.S. Uh, congressman, and it was, it was at that moment that President Reagan said, "We're going to make GPS into a system that can be used uh, for everyone, um, not just a military system." Um, and it was really that kind of top-level uh, engagement that you know kind of saved GPS from uh, you know kind of uh, budgetary neglect. Um, but it also meant that GPS wasn't just going to be a military system for specialized, you know, smart bombs and things like that. So really right from the beginning of its, um, you know, even before it was really turned on, uh, it's being kind of conceived of as a universal infrastructure, one that's going to be covering around the world uh, at very high precision uh, used by the military and civilians alike, not just in the U.S., but in other countries as well. Um, so that to me is, you know, a, a really important uh, shift uh, in terms of the kinds of infrastructures that organize space. Um, and the, the, I think the, the key kind of experiential quality of GPS is that most people just experience it in a very local way. You know, for me, I, I get around my city, uh, I'm, or in other, you know, other cities I might travel to, but I don't really use it in a global way in any kind of meaningful sense. I'm not, you know, targeting missiles or going on um, big shipping expeditions. Um, But everyone using GPS in their own local way everywhere around the world creates a kind of a global infrastructure um, of a kind of shared space uh, without regional boundaries uh, that's basically independent from uh, the cookie cutter uh, kind of jigsaw puzzle of of national territory.
0: Thank you. So you conclude um, After the Map with four really interesting uh, sets of questions that you, your book um, provokes. Are there certain questions in particular that you would like to share with listeners? Sure.
1: Um, yeah. So, I mean, there's four. I'm not going to go through uh, all of them. But I think that the, maybe the two that, that I think are, uh, you know, really kind of, I think, respond to the, the opening of the book with the, the, both the macro-political and the micro-political levels of analysis one question is really, what is GPS? How does GPS change what it means to be a state? Um, if there's a really uh, you know, strong connection and there is a strong connection historically between national states and traditional cartography, um, you know, if you look in the early modern period, for example, uh, the kind of the creation of national mapping comes hand in hand with the creation of national uh, borders. And the sort of consequent the consequentiality of those borders. Um, so, if mapping and the national state are really closely linked historically, then what do we what do we say? What do we think about the fate of national states when uh, geographic knowledge is no longer so tightly uh, linked to uh, the kind of you know political commitment over a defined uh, area of space? And I don't know. I mean, I, that's a, a question that uh, you know is, is huge uh, that I wouldn't be able to answer on my own. Um, But I can imagine lots of ways that people could kind of ask that question in new ways, um, thinking about territory in a different way. So how would we think about what a state is if we no longer think of territory as a simple, well-bounded block of space? So that's one set of questions. And then the other, at the um, kind of the micro-political sense of of everyday life and and geographic subjectivity, um, I think one of the big questions is, um, GPS is a system created by the U.S. military for military purposes. Um, It's mostly, you know, deployed and still used by huge organizations, not just the military, but, you know, uh, commercial aviation, shipping, uh, et cetera. And so it clearly gives those huge organizations, and the U.S. military in particular, uh, you know, much more kind of power, influence, uh, et cetera. But it also gives a huge amount of new possibility to just everyday users. Um, so you can, you know, uh, get around, uh, in places you have no familiarity with at all. Um, you know, you can go halfway around the world, um, and find your way from A to B, no problem. Um, you can find, you know, new restaurants in, uh, faraway places, all that kind of stuff. Um, but you can also, uh, use GPS, you know, obviously for uh, nefarious purposes. Um, you can use it to make new maps from scratch in places where the state itself, Uh, either can't or won't make maps. Um, And so uh, one of the questions is whether the kind of GPS acting as a force multiplier, um, that's the military's phrase, at the kind of large institutional level, um, is the benefit to those large institutions bigger proportionally uh, than the benefit to these kind of small, local, everyday, unintended, uh, perhaps even subversive uses. Um, So is my capacity as an individual multiplied, you know, proportionally more, perhaps, than the military itself that it was originally designed to benefit. And this is really a question about um, kind of, you know, the intersection of geographic knowledge and power in a very straightforward sense, right? Mm -hmm. Does this give new forms of power, uh, new possibilities to everyday users and unintended consequences, or does it only reinforce a kind of top-down vision coming from uh, the U.S. military? And I think that's an open question. Um, I think there's we need to have more kind of empirical studies at a local scale of how GPS is actually being used and how it's shifting kind of power dynamics on the ground. Um, Is it opening up new possibilities for um, kind of bottom up uh, projects or is it actually only giving the illusion of bottom up agency um, and actually what it's doing is consolidating uh, power and influence only more uh, in the hands of a few uh, major actors?
0: Great, thank you, um, so there are uh, two other broad questions that I uh, wanted to ask you. so uh, something that your book does really well is you show how globalism is always specific it's not uh, this like universal general thing it's uh, always um, specific contingent you know representative of a particular um, uh, set of people, uh, and then you you often will um, counterpose uh, uh, talk of globalism with talk of regionalism. So can you um, uh, say something a little bit about how you uh, use these terms and uh, uh, how, what, what they mean to uh, the, the three different projects that you looked at? Sure, of course. Um, so, yeah, a lot of the um,
1: kind of my reaction to kind of a lot of the work on globalization in, in general, really over the last uh, several decades, Um, is this weird oscillation between either things are national or they're global. And there seems to be a kind of teleological sense of things starting national and ending up global, which doesn't really, I think, make sense historically. There have been kind of global systems literally for centuries. Um, And as you just said, global isn't just one thing. Um, There's lots of different ways of being global. Uh, And I'm interested in shifts in what it meant to be global, Rather than a kind of shift from national to global, which I don't think is really the right way to think about it. Um, so, for example, just in in the book, one of the, the obvious ones is that a kind of you know planetary scale knowledge, uh, as organized by say the international map of the world, uh, is really organized as a sort of state to state jigsaw puzzle, right? So this is really you know international um, in a certain sense, rather than global. Uh, but it meant that the kind of the global system was kind of put together out of national building blocks. Um, So the sort of the the dichotomy in the early 20th century is between national and international um, where international is what works at the planetary scale. And I think what distinguishes globalism or, you know, globality or whatever uh, as the word picked up during and after World War II uh, is instead of being paired with the national, it's paired with the regional. Um, And I mean this in a somewhat specific sense. If you look at uh, the way that maps were made if you look at the way that, um, say, the universal transverse Mercator coordinates were used, if you look at the way that these uh, navigation systems were designed and deployed during and after World War II, they're all operating at a regional rather than national scale. Um, So they're explicitly designed to, to, to cross national borders, either extending national space into the oceans or extending national space over into other countries, such as the electronic grid unfolded over Germany. And to me, that's what really matters is that the global, the kind of counterpart of the global is always the regional rather than the national. Um, So I don't think that there's a kind of mega historical trajectory from national to global, but rather from a national international duality to a regional global duality. Um, And you see that reflected, I mean, I haven't done the the primary research on this, but just, you know, uh, kind of impressionistically, you see this uh, reflected in the way that, um, you know, Regional blocks, trade groups, um, uh, you know, security alliances. These are the regional becomes a new kind of uh, space of politics and uh, economy in the the post war world very strongly. Um, and one of the things that's so striking is that uh, you know, after World War II, especially uh, in the 1960s and, and, and 70s, the kind of the breakup um, of all the European uh, colonies, uh, colonial empires, um, and then with the, the, the collapse of the Soviet Union, the breakup of, of that empire, um, there's really a strong sense that, oh, the world is actually becoming more you know, nationally organized. Um, but that's happening on the, on the backdrop of this very strong turn to this more regional organization uh, of space. And to me, that's what I see in these uh, mapping and navigation technologies is a turn uh, towards the regional rather than reinforcing uh, this kind of uh, the political ideal uh, of a national state.
0: Absolutely. Thank you. And uh, um, the uh, sort of like a a follow up question to that. So your book is obviously, uh, you know, global in scope, um, but it is simultaneously a history of uh, the rise of U.S. globalism. So a specific uh, globalism. Um, So I was wondering if you could uh, just sketch out the connection between the the shift in the nature of territory and uh, u.s hegemony sure um so i think one of the things that uh I've, i found again
1: and again was that I, I can't write this story as just a story of the united states coming along and rebuilding the world in its image um so it doesn't start with projects in the united states that then get ramped up to global scale it starts with projects in europe um and the United States in the beginning of the story is, a, a, you know, not a minor player, but, but certainly not a major player. Um, and what I find so interesting is that um, this is a, a story often about the United States kind of uh, co-opting or scaling up technologies uh, developed elsewhere. And what that means is that there are also technologies that, when they're scaled up, apply just as much to U.S. territory as they do to other territory. Um, so the navigation systems or the grids in World War I or Two, you scale those up to a global level. Uh, and the United States also becomes, uh, you know, a, a place that, where borders are uh, more permeable um, and, uh, and, and, and the sort of the horizon, the sort of subjectivity horizon becomes more regional as well. Um, and so this isn't a, a – I don't try to argue against the kind of rise of, of U.S. hegemony or global military power. Uh, These are, you know, huge central themes in the book. But what I think I I, I do try to say is that this isn't a project of the United States kind of trying to rule the rest of the world from on high, um, from its own kind of national fortress. This is about the U.S. um, pursuing and creating a new kind of space that transforms the United States power uh, and territory just as as much as it does other people's uh, territory and potential. Um, so that's, I at least really see it as kind of a new spatial, you know, new rules of the game, uh, in terms of space and territory, rather than a story about the United States kind of dominating others underneath its, you know, boot.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and, um, uh, just to, uh, conclude the interview, uh, can you, uh, tell listeners what you are working on at the moment?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm working on, uh, two books right now, um, uh, one is a book about um, mapping based on my own mapping work. Um, so, like I said, I kind of got into the history of mapping first by making maps of my own, and I've been making maps for uh, you know ten or fifteen years now. They're all on my. I have a web- website about mapping called uh, RadicalCartography.net, um, and I'm bringing all those projects together into a kind of methodological book about mapping in the spatial uh, humanities and spatial history, um, trying to figure out you know how do we understand um, kind of, for lack of a better word, kind of um, visually argumentative mapping in a data-saturated era? Um, So it's kind of my response or my intervention into uh, both, you know, kind of narrow academic things like digital humanities or spatial history, but also more broadly into, you know, what is mapping now that we're awash in data uh, and maps are actually kind of more ubiquitous than ever before, but don't have the same kind of, institutional authority that they once did. Um, So we're no longer in a world where the maps come from, say, Rand McNally uh, and National Geographic. Maps are created by everyday people. Uh, They're all over the web. Um, What do we make of that and what what should we do? That's one project. And the other is um, what I'm calling a spatial history of the environmental sciences uh, in the last 50 years, trying to understand um, in in ways that are slightly similar to the first book but really focus more on environmental issues How has the environment been made visible uh, and and legible? And this is not just about mapping. It's also about uh, types of photography, aerial surveillance, uh, certain kinds of mathematical modeling, spatial modeling, um, really trying to understand uh, all the ways that the environment has been understood, um, and and especially how uh, there's been a huge change in how the environment has been visualized, say, from the beginning of the environmental movement in 1960 uh, to the present
0: fascinating. I look forward to reading them. Well, uh, thank you so much for your time, uh, Bill. And uh, I uh, look forward to talking to you again. Thank you. That's great. Thanks for having me.